The reading for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, it's time now to turn our attention to the place of parents in the home and how I pray that you would help me as I speak and how I pray that you would help all of us as we listen attentively. Father, your standard is high and your standard is attainable by the power of Christ in the Holy Spirit. And so I pray that you would lift that up for us this morning. And I pray that every single parent here today or future parent would see this standard and want to rise up to it and want to live by it. And at the same time, I pray for your mercy, Father, because as parents, we have failed so often and sometimes so badly, and we need your mercy, Lord. And I thank you that the truth is that there is no sin in our lives that is greater than your mercy. And I love you for that. I love you that we can come to you and rest and rest and rest in your peace and find out the greatness and the depth and the profundity of your love for us. And so I pray that Both things would land on us today, Father, a vision of a a standard for us as parents, and I pray for the mercy of God to land upon us as well. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, and may you use your word this day to glorify your name and equip your people. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen. Children, last week I addressed my sermon to you because Paul addresses his words to you in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And I want to thank you for listening well to me. I know that many of you did because of what you said to me after the service. I appreciate your attentiveness. And I want to ask you to listen to me closely for one more Sunday. Uh, Not that I don't want you to listen to me every Sunday, but this particular Sunday I want you to listen really carefully. Because I'm turning to talk to your parents today, but I think it's important for you to understand what God expects from your parents so that you can pray for them and help them in the tasks that they have. And parents... I suggested to you last week that it would be a good thing for you to sit down with your children and walk them through Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Strike while the iron is hot, so to speak, and train them in the way that they should go. And I want to suggest that you do that again this week with verse 4. When Rachel was little, I don't know, she was probably 6 or 7 years old, Kim and I sat down with her and we worked very carefully through Ephesians 6, 1, 2, 3, and 4 with her. And we tried to come to one mind with her about what was expected of her and what was expected of us. And then we did a very risky thing for parents. We gave Rachel permission to call us when we weren't living up to the standard God had set before us. And especially me. I told her, when it says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. And I said, Rachel, if I do that to you, you are welcome to confront me about it. And she has over the years. Now, every once in a while, this has led to a little tension in the household because we don't quite agree about who is in the right and who is in the wrong. But that's been a rare occasion. Most often, Rachel has been really good about stewarding the Word of God well. And and the bottom line of why we did this with her and why I would suggest that you do it with your children is that I wanted Rachel to know, and I want her to know today, that there is an authority in our house that's greater than me or greater than her mom or greater than us combined. And she has a right to appeal to that authority. God is the master of the Handron household. And Rachel has direct access to him. And she is welcome to confront me with his word if I am out of line. And so I think this would be a good and healthy thing for you to do with your children 
and I think you'd see a lot of fruit in it. It's important, I think, that we let our children see that we're not hungry for power over them. We're hungry for the presence of God in our homes. And if that means that we're in the wrong, then it means that we're in the wrong. So with that, I want to just work our way right through verse 4 this morning. We're pretty much just going to take it word by word. And uh, let me begin by reading it again. Paul just simply says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So let's talk about the word fathers for a little bit. wonder why you think Paul chose to use the word fathers there instead of parents. In verse 1, he just said, children, obey your what? Your parents. And now here in verse 4, instead of saying, parents don't provoke your children, he says, fathers don't provoke your children. And I wonder what it is that he's up to. And I have two answers to that question. First of all, I think Paul is addressing fathers specifically here simply because he's honoring the line of authority that he spelled out in Ephesians 5. I do think he has mothers in mind because obviously mothers have a little bit to do with the raising of children, right? Just a little bit. So Paul was not stupid. He understood this. And I don't think it's that he was dismissing the mothers. I think he was simply honoring the line of authority that he spelled out in, in chapter 5, which goes something like this. Before God, husband and wife are absolutely equals. There, there's none of this going on before God. Male and female are equals before God. In fact, in marriage, male and female are one before God. So not only are they equal, but they're one. And the two shall become one flesh, the Scripture says. Now in that equality, in that oneness, God has assigned roles to each. And when each person plays their role well, they worship God. When a wife submits to her husband out of reverence for Christ, she worships Him because she's honoring His wisdom and walking in obedience to His commands. It's mainly about her and Him here. And when a husband lays down his own desires and passions and hopes and dreams and serves his wife and loves his wife and works for the good of his wife as Christ does the church, that man worships God because he is submitting to the wisdom of God and he is walking in obedience to God. So before the Lord, husband and wife are equal, but they've been assigned roles. And when they play those roles well, they are essentially worshiping God. Now, I think then the reason that Paul addresses fathers here in verse 4 is not because he's dismissing mothers, but because he's simply honoring that line of authority of submission and leadership. And this is not unique to the New Testament, by the way. The Old Testament has the same sort of principle in mind. So, for instance, let me point you to Proverbs 1.8 and Proverbs 6.20. They're up here on the screen for you. They very simply say, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. In Hebrew, there's a, a poetic device called parallelism. And what will happen is the author will state one thing in the first line, and then he restates it in the second line in slightly different words, but he's paralleling the two things. So here, he's paralleling the father's teaching and the mother's instruction and essentially calling them the same thing. And he does it again in 6.20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. So in both of these places, Solomon starts with the father, but he very quickly enfolds the mother and he makes them equal things. And he tells the children, children, you must obey, you must hold fast to both your father's teaching and your mother's teaching. Both. These, these are equals before God. And children, your moms and your dads ought to be equal in your sight. 
And so I think Paul is doing much the same thing in Ephesians as Solomon is doing here. He's not ignoring mothers. Obviously, mothers have a profoundly important place in the lives of children, but he's simply acknowledging the pattern of God, the design of God. He's trusting in the wisdom of God. There's a second reason that I think Paul mentions fathers here, though, and it has to do with the fact that he raised up the issue of anger in the first part of that verse. And I think it's simply that Paul may be addressing fathers here because men are more prone to anger, generally speaking. And men are more prone to pass anger down to next generations, almost like it's a family tradition or something. In my own family, for instance, I come from a very long line of angry Irishmen. I don't know a whole lot about my descendants going way back. And I, at one point, realized I'm not sure I want to know. I'm Irish after all. Who knows, who knows what's back there if I start really digging. But what I do know is that my grandfather was a very angry man. And he treated my father harshly. And he taught my father how to be a very angry man. In fact, my dad was so mad at his dad that he volunteered to go into World War II to get away from his dad. Now, that's pretty bad, right? He'd rather face a German gun than to face his own father. And when the war was over... My grandpa lived in Boston. My dad settled in Seattle, and that was on purpose. Until he was 38 years old, he never reconciled with his father again. So these were angry people. And then my father taught my brothers how to be angry. He did a really good job of that. In fact, one of my brothers was so angry at my father, he didn't even come to his funeral. And so anger was passed down in my family tradition. Now, my dad died when I was pretty young, so he didn't pass that on to me. He was actually pretty gentle and kind and warm with me. But my brothers passed the family tradition down to me. And I have struggled with anger for years, for most of my life. I don't think it's exactly a law, but I do think that it's a general rule, that to be male is to be angry. To be male is to deal at some level or other with anger. And we're really, really good at passing it down to the next generations. It just seems to be a corruption that is inbred into us. And so I think that part of why Paul is pointing to fathers in verse 4 is he's saying, Fathers... Don't pass down to your children the attitude of your forefathers, but now pass down to them the attitude of your heavenly Father. Be a cycle breaker. Don't be like your, your, your uh, ancestors. Be like your Savior. Be like Jesus Christ. I think Paul has in mind what he said in chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. He said, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And I think that's the vision he has for fathers in the household. Put those things away and be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let your children look at you and say, he was more like Jesus than he was like his own father. Pass down a new kind of way of living to your children, is I think what Paul is saying. So, now that anger's on the table, let's talk about that for a little bit. Paul says, don't provoke your children to anger. And I wonder, of all the things Paul could have possibly mentioned there, why did he bring up anger? There's so many things he could have told parents not to do. He could have told us not to abuse our children. He could have told us not to neglect our children. He could have told us not to indulge them or to spoil our children. He could have told us not to use our power to harm our children in any way, shape, or form. But of all the things he could have said, he chose to bring up the issue of anger. Parents, do not provoke your children to anger. And I wonder why. I have four reasons why I think he's doing this. Number one, the improper use of anger in parenting 
has the effect of, of um, discouraging our children. And I think that discouragement is a debilitating thing and it's harmful to the development of our children. Paul adds a little phrase in Colossians 3.21 when he says basically the same thing that he does here in Ephesians. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Lest they become discouraged. I think Paul knows that discouragement induced by anger is debilitating. It is really deflating. And it destroys many things that we are trying to build up. So I think the first reason he highlights anger is because of its destructive potential. Number two, the improper use of anger in parenting produces things in our children that we should neither want nor work for in our parenting. John Calvin said this in his comments on Ephesians 6.4, Kind and liberal treatment has rather a tendency to cherish reverence for their parents and to increase the cheerfulness and activity of their obedience. But a harsh and unkind manner rouses them to obstinacy and destroys the natural affections. So parents, we might be able to use anger to get our kids to do what we want them to do. It is a a good tool to force compliance. But when we do that, Sometimes we often destroy the very affections that God is trying to nurture and, and prosper inside of our children. Anger is like a, a big old huge sledgehammer. And sometimes you have to wield that thing. It is a tool that even Jesus Himself wielded a time or two. But we have to use it cautiously because it has tremendously destructive potential. And so when you decide to swing the sledgehammer of anger, be careful. Beware. Because you may destroy things in your children that God is trying to build up. And again, I think it is this destructive potential of anger that causes Paul to highlight it above everything else that he could have highlighted there. Number three, the use, the improper use of anger is an abuse of power. And parents must not abuse the power that God has entrusted to them. Here's what Matthew Henry said. He's an 18th century, I think maybe 19th century, biblical commentator. Though God has given you parents power, you must not abuse that power. Remembering that your children are, in a particular manner, pieces of yourselves. And therefore, they ought to be governed with great tenderness and love. Be not impatient with them. Use no unreasonable severities and lay no rigid injunctions upon them. When you caution them, when you counsel them, when you reprove them, do it in such a manner as not to provoke them to anger. In all such cases, deal prudently and wisely with them, endeavoring to convince their judgments and to work upon their reason. I want to read that last sentence again. Please listen to that carefully. In all such cases, in other words, whenever you need to discipline your child, deal prudently and wisely with them, endeavoring to convince their judgments and to work upon their reason. In other words, parents, the way that I hear this is that my job as a parent is not to force compliance out of my child. But my job is to cause them to do the right things for the right reasons. My job is to help them be motivated from the inside out to do the things that they ought to do. And in my experience, anger almost never has the capacity to produce that. Anger can produce compliance. And often, to my shame, I have used anger in my household to get my child to do what I wanted her to do. But that cannot affect the heart in the way God wants it to be affected. And so I think Paul is highlighting this to say, parents, please deal carefully with this. Because 
Anger does not really have the capacity to cause rightful motivation inside of our children. And then finally, number four, and I'm indebted to John Piper for this point. He has two sermons, by the way, on, on DesiringGod.org on Ephesians 6.4. They're great sermons. If you ever have a chance, go listen to them. So I basically stole this point straight from him. I'm probably going to see him in a week or two here, and I'll just admit that I stole a point from him. One of the reasons that Paul has cautioned us against provoking our children to anger is because anger is the natural reaction of a human being when they're confronted with authority. People don't like to be confronted with authority. They don't like to be told what to do. They don't like the news that there is a master outside of themselves that has power and authority over them. They don't like that. And so when we exercise authority over our kids, at least from time to time, it is going to provoke anger in them. It's just going to be a front burner issue for us as parents, and therefore we must learn to deal with it wisely. Because not only is is anger dangerous from the side of the one who has power, but on the side of the one who doesn't have power, anger can be a very consuming emotion, can't it? When you are overcome with anger, tell me, Is it easy for you to feel things like pity? Things like humility? When you're overcome with anger, do you want to listen to the person that you're arguing with? Do you want to be patient? Do you want to have compassion? I sure don't. When I'm overcome with anger, I want to win. That's what I want to do. I want to win. It's a very consuming and sometimes destructive emotion. And so the point I'm making here is that we have to learn to steward it well as parents Because even when we're calm with our children, even when we're mature toward our children, even when we're Christ-like toward them, we are going to provoke anger in them because they're not going to like the fact that we're telling them what to do from time to time. And therefore, we have to be really wise parents and know what to do with anger when it boils up inside of our children. We have to know that the way we handle it at that moment can either be for good or ill in their lives. And we need to learn to be skillful with it. Now, although Paul cautions us away from the unnecessary use of anger, I don't think that he's saying that we parents should never do anything that causes our kids to be angry. I don't think that's what he has in mind at all. For instance, let's say that your child has been playing a video game for an hour or an hour and a half or something like that, and you as a parent just feel like enough's enough. It's time for you to stop playing video games, and to start doing something else. And by the way, kids, it's great for you that your parents don't want you to be video vegetables, that they want you to have a mind to read and to think and maybe do some chores or play or use your imagination or color or something like that. It's a good thing that your parents let you play video games, but only for a time. That's a good thing. But let's say, parents, that you walk into the room and say, child, time's up. And, you know, finish what you're doing, but, but time's up. And you stand there and you wait until they're done and you put it away. I uh, would assume that at least from time to time your kids aren't going to be happy about that. And I would assume that from time to time when you make them stop the game and do something else, they're going to get angry at you. And what I would say is that kind of provocation of anger is not a sin. Because you know what that anger is really about? That anger is rising up in a child because they resent you for not letting them indulge their flesh. And one of your jobs as a parent is to draw the boundaries into where they can indulge in earthly pleasures. It's okay to enjoy a video game, but within parameters. And it's your job to draw those parameters. And when they want to go beyond it and you won't let them, the reason they're angry is because they want to indulge their flesh and they don't want you getting in the way. 
You see, if you handle yourself maturely in that moment, Christ-like, in a Christ-like manner, I don't think you've sinned to provoke anger in them. In fact, I think it would be a sin not to provoke anger in them. Because what would be the alternative? The alternative would be, well, so that you don't make them mad, just let them do whatever they want for as long as they want. And I don't know what you think, but I think that's bad parenting. That is not leading our children. So with a loving, patient, calm, Christ-like attitude, sometimes we will provoke anger in our kids and we just have to learn to manage it well. I think that's really what Paul is getting at here. I don't think he's saying that anger should never exist in your household. That, that would be ridiculous. Paul was not that dumb. He was not that unrealistic. He was tethered to the earth. He knew that this was going to happen. But I think he's saying, parents, be careful. And you have to be the adult here. You have to be the adult. When anger pops up, you have to be the one that's mature and helps everybody calm down, take a breath, and overcome it. Now, let's turn our attention to the second half of the verse. That's what Paul said not to do. Let's look now at what Paul said to do. And specifically, he simply said, Parents, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Greek word for our words, bring up, literally means to nourish or to feed somebody. And so I think what Paul is saying to us here in the second half of this verse is parents nourish or feed your children to full maturity by the means of the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The way that you nourish and feed a child to physical maturity is by giving them food and water. And, and last time I checked, when we fail to give them food and water, they stop growing, right? It's not good when you starve your children to death. They must have food and water if they're to grow up physically. And the means by which we grow our children up spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, is by the discipline and instruction of the Lord. These are the food and the water of the soul, is what I think Paul is getting at. So if I had to define the task of parenting based on Ephesians 6, I would say this. To parent is to nourish our children to full maturity by the means of the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's something worth remembering and something worth trying to practice. Now let me just take a few minutes and talk about what that means. Those three little words there of the Lord at the end of that sentence, those are the most important word in the sentence. And I think that they imply that to nourish our children to full maturity is to teach them to know the Lord God Himself. We're not just trying to teach them rules. We're not just trying to teach them stories about God. We're not just trying to teach them all the things God said not to do and all the things God said to do. We're not just trying to expose them to theological propositions. All of these things are important. And all of these things have their place. But our job as parents is to introduce our children to the knowledge of God Himself. Our job as parents is to help them know God and love God with all of their heart and walk with God and talk with God and sup with God and dine with God and receive discipline from God and blessing from God and insight from God and power from God. Our job is to teach them what it means to know Him, not just to know about Him. One of the many reasons I think that so many young adults walk away from church in their 20s is because parents have not done a good job of helping their kids actually know the Lord. We've done a good job of teaching them how to go to church and sometimes even how to read their Bible or, or sing a song or two. But we haven't done the best job of connecting them heart to heart with God, of giving them a taste for the presence of God Himself. 
Giving them a passion to seek after God above all other treasures. We haven't displayed for them what it looks like to be consumed with passion for God. And so they walk away. Because when they get older, they know stories, but they don't know God Himself. And so there's actually not all that much to walk away from. Now obviously, it's not the parent's fault every time a child walks away from God. I can tell you many stories of parents who've done everything just right. They've done it just right. They've trained their child in the way they they should go. They've been relational with their children. They've tried to introduce their child to God before the throne of God every day of their lives. And yet their children still walk away because their kids' hearts are wicked, just like everyone else's heart is wicked. And not every parent can be blamed every time a child walks away. That's just not realistic. But parents, listen, if our children are going to walk away from the Lord, let it not be because we failed to do our job. Let it not be because we failed to strive to help them know God as He is. Let it not be because we have failed to pray for them and beg for the presence of God to surround them every single day of their lives. And then if they walk away, they walk away. But I don't want to have to stand before God and tell Him, you're the reason she walked away. I don't want to hear that from Him. And so parents, I want to plead with you. Teach your children to know God. Not just to know about Him. You can't outsource this stuff, you see. You can't just send them to a Sunday school class or something and think that that's going to do it for them. It won't. It won't. You have to teach them how to know God and love God and cherish God and follow God. You have to teach them that He's alive, that He's real, that He's great, that He's merciful, that He's lovely, that He's pleasurable, that He is enough for you. And you have to teach these things not just by speaking the words, But you have to teach them by living this out in front of them. That's how this stuff goes. Someone said to me years ago that values are better caught than taught. Values are better caught than taught. In other words, I can tell my daughter anything I want to about how much I value prayer. But it's when she sees me praying that she learns that I value prayer. And her seeing me pray situation after situation after situation, that will teach her a lot more than some Sunday school class about prayer. And so they're better caught than taught. That's why Deuteronomy 6, 6 6-7 says this. Famous passage, you probably know it. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's the first thing, parents. They shall be on your heart. And then, on the basis of that, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Now the only way that you can teach your kids like that, in other words, in every ebb and flow of life, is if you are conscious of God in every ebb and flow of life. If you are thinking of Him, and seeing Him, and enjoying Him, delighting in Him, seeking after Him, loving Him with all of your heart, submitting yourself to Him, the only way to cause your children to know God is to know Him yourselves. And so parents, please do not underestimate the value and the importance of your pursuit of personal intimacy with God. It's more important than you think it is. Every day as you draw near to Him and come to know Jesus Christ as He is, that's more important than you think it is because that's the foundation by which you can help your children to actually know God. And as far as I know, there's not another way to lead someone else to know Him. Now when it comes to the question of how shall we teach them to know, Paul has given us two clear things. He says do it by the discipline of the Lord, do it by the instruction of the Lord. And these are... These are distinguishable things that Paul is bringing up. 
So let's talk first about discipline. The word here for discipline literally means that we teach our children to form proper habits. In other words, that we lead them to live a disciplined lifestyle. It means that we teach them to be masters over their own desires rather than slaves to their own desires. I get the picture in my mind of a wild horse. I think the hearts of our children are like wild horses. And our job is to tame that heart. And more importantly, our job is to help them to tame their own heart, to be in control of their own affections, to be in control of their own desires so that they're not ruled by the flesh, but that they're ruled by the Lord God Himself. Now this presents a huge problem because there's not a single human being that's alive that has the power to dominate their own flesh. The only one who's done it successfully was God, and His name is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that got over on His flesh, so to speak. We can't do it. So then what do you do? Your job is to teach your children to do something that they cannot do. Welcome to parenting, right? This is hard stuff. Well, what comes to my mind immediately is then, that means I must have to preach the Gospel to my kids all the time. I must. It must be my job to massage the Gospel into their hearts and minds in situation after situation. It must be my job to help them see that their hearts are so wicked that they cannot overcome their own desires, but that God is so merciful that if they will believe in Him, He will forgive them and save them forever and ever and ever. The job of parenting is to massage the Gospel into the hearts and minds of our children in real life situations. Ken Sandy is the founder of Peacemaker Ministries, and I heard him speak at Bethlehem a few years ago. And he told a story of a time when his daughter had sinned against him. I think it was his daughter. And after it was all over, he was sitting there processing with her. He was on his knee, looking her in the eyes. And he said to her, Honey, do you see how badly you need a Savior? Do you see your desperate need for a Savior? And I just loved that question. Because I think in the heat of a moment, it helps a child to see two things. Number one, that even though she knew the right thing to do, she couldn't help herself but do the wrong thing. She didn't have the power to stop her own self from sinning against her dad. And the other thing that helps her see is that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. A really great Savior. And I promise you something, that young lady learned more about the Gospel in that moment than she ever learned in a Sunday school class anywhere where she was just learning about the philosophy of the Gospel. It's parents in the heat of a teachable moment that need to massage the Gospel into the hearts of their children. Constantly preaching the Gospel to themselves, constantly applying it to their children. And I think in this way, we're able to train our children to do what is impossible with them, namely to tame their flesh. We're able to train our children to look to Christ and trust in His power and in that way overcome. This leads to the next point, instruction. The word instruction in Greek means exactly what it does in English. It means that we must teach our children specific content about God. And obviously that content is found in the Bible. As parents, we have to invest a body of truth into our children and we have to show them how that body of truth connects to knowing God as He is. We need to show them how truths about God inflame love for God and passion for God. It's important that we not teach them facts as though they are separated from knowing God Himself because that's not true. And I think that we accomplish this in two ways. First of all is formal instruction. There's different ways to go about this in your household. And at Glory of Christ, 
Parents, we don't have a, a sort of monolithic view about how you have to instruct your children and just say, this is the way to do it, and every parent must do it this way. I don't think that that's true. I think there's more than one way to get this task done. But, parents, somehow or other, you need to have formal instruction happening in your household where you are teaching your children specific content about God that comes from the Bible. And then the second thing we have to do is we have to live in light of the truths that we teach so that our children see that these things are real. So we teach them truth, we live in light of the truth. We teach them truth, we live in light of the truth. We teach them truth, we live in light of the truth. I think in this way, we give our kids a pretty good shot at knowing God as He is. I'll give you a couple for instances. It's one thing to teach our kids that God provides. It's another thing to enfold our children into the celebration when God actually does provide. It's really important that we teach them Jehovah Jireh, my provider. We need to teach our kids that. We need to teach our kids that God provides. But when God provides for your family, you need to sit your kids down and help them see it. Son, daughter, did you see this? Do you see it? We had a need. We had no way to meet that need. We prayed to the Lord. We trusted in the Lord. We waited upon the Lord. And now look, a check came in the mail today for the exact amount that we needed. I remember once in college, I had a bill that we couldn't pay. And it was a specific amount. I don't remember what the amount was. But I went out to my mailbox one day after praying, and there was a check for the exact amount I needed to pay my bill. And I don't know how this person found out I had a need. They weren't living even in the city that I was in. Somehow the Lord instructed them to give me that money. If Rachel was old enough at the time, in fact, I'm not even sure she was born at that time, but if she was, I would have enfolded her into the celebration and said, See! See, daughter! God provides. God provides. This helps our kids go from head knowledge to heart knowledge. Or, let's say that you teach your kid that God is merciful. That's a good thing. But it's even a better thing to display to them the passion and the gratefulness you have for God when He's been merciful to you. Let's say that you've sinned. And let's say that God has greatly forgiven you your sin and it moves you and you're touched by it. Parents, don't be afraid to be weak and vulnerable in front of your kids and tell them, child, I sinned and I was grieved and I didn't know what to do and I prayed to God and I asked for His mercy and He poured His mercy out upon me and I am grateful. And in this way, your kids see the mercy of God not just as a theological proposition, but as a living reality in your life, you see. You need to teach them truth, but live in the light of that truth. We must do this if we're going to give them a shot at actually knowing God as He is. We have to invest a body of truth about God into our kids because God has revealed specific details about Himself in the Bible. God is not a nebulous being that we're just free to make up what we think about Him, right? God has revealed Himself in specific ways. And so it's important that we teach those things to our children. Otherwise, we're not worshiping God as He is. We're worshiping God as we want Him to be. And, and that's idolatry. That's not a good thing. So we have to teach them truth. But I really think it's important, maybe even more important, that we live in the light of that truth. Otherwise, we just create legalists or philosophers or whatever, but we don't teach them how to know God. And I just don't know another way to teach them, someone to actually know the Lord. And so in conclusion, parents, let me just repeat myself. Our job is to nourish our children, to feed them 
up to full maturity by the discipline and instruction of the Lord. These things are the food for the soul. The discipline and instruction of the Lord. And it's our job to give that to them. If we're to do this well, we must first know God ourselves. We must instruct our kids and live in light of what we teach them. And we must be exceedingly careful with anger. Because anger has the potential of destroying everything that I just laid out. It does. In one heartbeat, you can destroy more than you built in six months with your kid. And I know that from experience. And I grieve over the fact that I have abused my use of anger at times. And I pray for mercy from my family and from my God for that. But again, we have to be careful with it and know that these other things are what God has called us to do. Now, if you're like me, when you hear a sermon like this, parents, you're probably going to walk away from here feeling a little burdened by your failures and by how significant maybe your failures are. And let me just say a couple words to you about that. On the one hand, I want to say to you, don't be too quick to get out from under the conviction of the Lord. Because it could be that you feel convicted this morning and and that you should feel convicted. It could be that He is doing things in your heart and in your life that will be good for you in the long run. Hebrews 12 says that in the moment, no discipline seems pleasant. But later, it produces a harvest of peace and fruit and righteousness. So it could be that right now, your father is disciplining you as you are trying to parent your children. So don't be too quick to escape that, would be my one word. On the other hand, though, you have to know just how merciful your God is. There is no failure that you have done that is greater than the mercy of God that can come in and go behind that. There's no hole that you've dug that is deeper than the mercy of God that can come underneath it and forgive you. So just know your Father's really merciful. And if you feel the kind of sorrow that is debilitating and discouraging and paralyzing, I would just, my, my gut there, my guess there would be that that sorrow is not from the Lord, but from the enemy. The Lord doesn't give a sorrow that condemns. He gives a sorrow that builds up. And so if you feel that condemning kind of sorrow, I would commend to you what my first pastor used to say to me over and again. He said, Charlie, every time the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. And I like that a lot because that's the truth. His future is not bright, but ours in Christ is. So receive the mercy of the the Lord and do not receive the condemnation of the devil would be my word to you this morning. And children... Just very quickly, I hope that you've gained a little bit of insight today into what God has called your parents to do. And kids, I want to ask you to pray for your parents every day. Being a parent is really hard. When you were born, guess what? Nobody gave your mom and dad a book to tell them how to raise you. There's no manual that says, here's how to raise a child. They don't know how to do it. They've got to do it on faith in God. They've got to talk to other parents. They've just got to figure this thing out. And it's hard. So pray for your parents, kids. Every day, pray for them. And if they failed you, forgive them. Just find a way in your heart before Christ to forgive them for what they've done. And if they lead you in the way that you should go, then obey the Word of the Lord. And obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother that you may live long in the land and that things may be well with you. Let's pray. Our God and Father, I thank You for Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1-4. through I thank You for Your vision of parenting and Your vision of submission that is there. And I pray that You would help us. I pray that You would cause us to live in the reality of these things now. Lord, please take this Word and plant it deeply in our hearts. 
and cause it to sprout and grow 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold for the glory of Your name. Father, we are all weakness. We are all failure. But You are great and You are gracious and You are good. And so I pray that You would take our weakness and display Your strength. We love You, Father, for being our Father. We love You for being merciful to us. And we thank You for what You will do in the future. In the great and gracious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.